Well, hello folks, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Today we have a special episode. Thomas is out this week, but we have with us Stephen. Hey, how's it going? And Sam. Hey guys, thanks for having me. No problem. Now, Sam is actually one of our uh, most wild supporters. Uh, he's uh, I actually found him outside my house uh, where he set up a small tent made out of cardboard. He's been subsisting on pigeons and small mice that are, you know, flee the sewers. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just honored to have someone, a super fan like this here on the show with us. Um, I never imagined we'd have this kind of reaction. Um, yeah, I'm just very happy that Sam's here. Now tell me, Sam, something I've been wondering, is it is subsisting only on pigeons? Is it the eggs or the pigeon meat itself? You know, it's kind of a holistic farming like system so they lay the eggs and you eat the eggs and then you eat the bodies you just kind of eat them all um, oh, okay i guess yeah. that way it's more encompassing process exactly yeah so yeah so this is almost uh you know one person who i, I really like to read about sustainability is wendell berry um, and this is sort of an urban version of that in which you know we fully engage with the urban environment and live off the land the land being uh mice and pigeons i don't know what you guys think about that I think that's an that's an important aspect. A very often wrote uh, eloquently about subsisting only on uh, pigeons and their various byproducts. Um, mm. I'm I'm certain you're familiar with uh, those those parts of Wendell Berry. Yes, ab- absolutely. Although the one thing that I didn't actually mention about what uh, Sam is uh, subsisting off of outside my house is uh, uh, what Sam drinks. Uh, hey Sam, uh, what are you what are you drinking right now? Yeah, so I'm drinking a nice. Nice cup of Prince of Wales tea. Mm. It's a nice black tea. Yeah, just it's very good. Black or just black, no sugar, no cream, nothing. Wow, hardcore. And I, I like this that. tea because you don't need to put any cream and sugar in it. And normally my cream goes bad before I can actually use it, so I end up not buying cream. And this is the only tea that tastes good without without cream, or tastes best without cream. Uh, you know, so so where I live, there's a little community center and they have tea bags that you can just steal um from there and the most nasty tea that i found is just called like cinnamon and spice and it's a tea bag and i kid you not it's full of like cinnamon powder maybe like a splash of nutmeg and then sugar so the tea is just ridiculously sweet when you make it and it's disgusting but what's not disgusting tea is what i'm drinking which is a lovely rooibos tea which is fabulous with a little with a spot of milk, as the English would say. Um, and I'm enjoying myself very well. As myself, I'm also having tea, so we've got uh, three tea drinkers here. Um, I'm uh, I'm still getting over a little cold so, though, so I threw in a little bit of honey and just a splash of whiskey to kind of help smooth out the, the vocal cords and whatnot. Damn, Stephen's hardcore off the fast and just spiking everything. Every day. <laughs> okay, very nice. Uh, well, you know what else you should do every single day? It's read. Hey, hey, Stephen, what are you reading right now? Well, uh, I've been reading, kind of bouncing back and forth between two things over the break. I took a, a slight break from After Virtue and uh, started rereading the, the book I mentioned uh, a few podcasts ago by Walker Percy called The Thando Syndrome. Still a solid book. He's gotten to the point where he's figuring out that there's massive government conspiracy to uh, kind of control the population. And he's trying to figure out what to do about that and whatnot. So it's it's getting intense. Uh, I've also, on a much nerdier note, have been reading through the excellent Call of Cthulhu campaign, Mast of Miralathotep. I'm running through that with my my players, and there's something very satisfying about both reading uh, Percy and Existential Angst, and then the cosmic horror of a godless universe. I'm so impressed that you pronounced that name. Can you say it for our audience about three times uh, fast? Go. No, I cannot. It took me, I kid you not, it probably took me the course of like a month or two of trying to pronounce it in my head in different ways to finally be able to say it out loud without just completely fumbling over myself. Uh, Lovecraft really did have a good way of just creating most bizarre names. Well, he probably just wrote them down, just got a whole bunch of random syllables and such. Yeah, my theory is he he was playing Scrabble one day and just took a handful of them and threw them against the wall, like while co- coating them in, in uh, some form of glue. Just threw them on the wall, whatever stuck, he uh, he made a name out of. It's like throwing spaghetti up against a wall, but instead you're, I don't know, getting at the cosmic horror at the center of the universe. Horror spaghetti. 
horror spaghetti. Well, as for myself, uh, I actually am also reading Walker Percy. I got a lovely uh, collection of Walker Percy short essays for Christmas, uh, Signposts in a Straight Land. And I'm not going to say any more because I wanted to spend my time that I get to talk about it reading about half a paragraph, uh, which is a little bit about American writers. Uh, quote, my own suspicion is that many American writers secretly envy writers like Solzhenitsyn who get sent to the gulag camps for their writings, keep writing on toilet paper and take on the whole bloody state and win. The total freedom of writers in this country can be distressing. What a burden to bear. The government not only allows us complete freedom, but like 95% of Americans couldn't care less what we write. Oh, you lucky Dostoevskys with your firing squads, exiles, prison camps, nut houses. True, American writers are often regarded as nuts, but as harmless ones. So the exile has to be self-imposed, which has its drawbacks. One goes storming off, holes up in Mount Mart or Algiers, cursing McCarthyism, racism, TV, shopping networks, consumerism, and no one pays the slightest attention. Months, years later, one saunters back, hands in pockets, eyes averted, but no one is looking now either. And I love that. Strong rhetoric. That's really well said. I'm just reminded of how much I love Walker Percy. I just finished, what was that book you gave me, Lost in the Cosmos, that Stephen recommended you read brevin yep. and i really have to read more of him because that was brilliant haunting ending isn't it it's i can't tell if if he's just messing around and almost trolling or whether this needs to change my way of thinking about existence i i recall reading it so i i read it end of my senior year and it was it was somewhat of a quasi faith buster class um that one of the the professors would kind of put on um in his theory was you may as well have your crisis of faith now now rather than later and one of the tools he would use was walker percy's lost in the cosmos and i i do recall it it shattered a lot of my kind of cocksure confidence in my own my own take on christianity my own take on my my faith and whatnot and made me realize that man there really are some absurd bits of it but there are also absurdities in kind of every aspect of life. And at the end of the day, you still have to choose, which Percy does so, so well is he just, he points at the absurdity of everything. He's the gesture that just kind of laughs at everything, but he's still in the background is kind of pointing to there, there may be something behind all of this. And I think that's a, that's a really beautiful, beautiful way of looking at it. So I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but in light of McIntyre, I am less sure what to make of Walker Percy because of McIntyre's takedown of the Kierkegaardian choice. That's not to say that all existentialists are, are made alike, but the idea that radical choice of some kind is at the center or has to be at the center of our ethical system is something that McIntyre seems to not like, or at least so far, but that said, I haven't read the full book. And the second thing that I wanted to say is great adjective, cocksure faith. I just would not have expected that adjective. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, much appreciated on that. I, I, I think you do have a point in that kind of the, the radical choice in the face of absurdism. I think, so I think when you get to the more ethical standpoint, then McIntyre does a really good job at kind of dismantling that as, well, this was a part of a, a particular historical process. And he, he does kind of a good job at critiquing Kierkegaard on this. And I think he'll continue to, to kind of be working on that. However, I mean, Percy isn't only going for the ethical, he's going more for I guess the philosophical kind of broader sense, like worldview, as, as cliche as that, that term is. And I, I, I think that once you accept the premise that kind of every worldview is at least somewhat absurd, you do kind of get a little bit more, well, you have to make a choice. And he keeps pointing to, well, yeah, it's absurd, but you may want to consider this, you know, the meaningful choice or, or what have you, which I don't know, I, I, I think is is at least an option that he makes very, very attractive. Well, that sounds like a uh, like a good time. Hey, Sam, are, are you having a good time with a book? Got a book? Have a good time? Good time book? book of um, I am. I'm not sure if you'd really call it a, a good time book, but I started a book today, um, Personal Knowledge by Michael Polonia. Um, hey. I'm actually reading it for a class uh, with our honors curriculum at school. But... It's a fascinating book. I'm really excited to get into this. Basically, he just explores scientific knowledge with his central claim being, I believe, that scientific objectivity just does not exist as most people perceive it to be. And then going through 
how we arrive at knowledge in the context of science. Particularly his first chapter was was interesting. He basically said that we accept theories as objective and label them as objective for a variety of different reasons. And usually that's based in like people's own desire to understand the universe and less in the actual merits of the theory. Is he going with the idea that a scientific theory provides explanatory power and that's what is important, not necessarily its correspondence with reality? I believe that's what he's saying and that people reject the theory only when another one brings them more personal benefit. And his big example is Copernicus. People rejected the geocentric theory only when it began to look ludicrous, not when it was actually this disproven. Yeah, part of, so for context, I've read this book or most of it at least um, when I took the same class. And part of what he talks about is just sort of the general postmodern claim, you know, that knowledge isn't objective in the way that we think about it, that, the, you know, there's social forces involved, such as with Copernicus or with uh, Albert Einstein for that matter. But yeah, anyway, really good book. Now I feel bad because I, I, I like almost tried to take over your your book there, Sam. <laughs> no, it's all good. You're the one who's read it. I just, I'm like 20 pages into it. So yeah, try and push through because Polanyi is a very smart fellow, but he is smart because he knows a little bit about everything and he writes about everything that he knows about, which is everything. So that's why it's yes. 600 pages or whatever it is. Yeah. that it's, it's like, I think almost 500 pages and it's a pain to read. I mean, it, it, it takes forever, but I think it's going to be worth it. Yeah. Uh, and you know what else is worth it is just sometimes you read an article during the week that's like, damn, that article was good. And so that's what we're going to do now in lieu of McIntyre, because uh, Sam has not read up to chapters five and six of McIntyre. And truth be told, I haven't had time to either. Uh, so first up, uh, Stephen, you've prepared a fun little article for us. Uh, why don't you run us through it? Right. Yeah. So uh, my article is somewhat related to um, the, the the previous book uh, in that it's dealing with science. Uh, you know, lots of science things. Uh, it is a Sunday book review in the New York Times, uh, where the uh, the author of the article, David Albert, he is a philosophy professor at. Uh, just a second, let me look it up. He's a professor of philosophy at Columbia and the author of Quantum Mechanics and Experience. And he was reviewing a book, A Universe from Nothing, by Lawrence M. Cross, who is a well-known cosmologist and prolific popular science writer, to quote the article. So apparently, Lawrence M. Cross, uh, he, he wrote this book, uh, Something from Nothing, or uh, A Universe from Nothing, uh, in essence, to explain how a universe can come without a creator, how it can really just pop up out of nowhere and... It, 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 that it, you don't need a, a divine creator to provide an explanation of where, from where everything comes from. Uh, obviously, I personally disagree, but that's not uh, kind of the, the, the point of this, um, because the, Mr. Albert or Dr. Albert uh, also disagrees not with his end point. He is also an atheist, um, but more of the, the methodology he is going about this. Dr. Cross makes a lot of kind of fundamental errors where he he explains how there are these quantum fields that it's totally, it, according to these these fields, it's totally okay for these elementary particles to not exist. And eventually they will be arranged in such a way such that elementary particles do exist. And that what we consider hard vacuum, even if it is hard vacuum with absolutely nothing, no particle there whatsoever, things can pop into and out of existence. That's not a problem. But he kind of makes the, the pretty big blunder that he doesn't explain where these fields come from why these fields are here, why they are arranged this way, other than that way. And uh, Albert really takes this guy to task for it. Um, I mean, again, these are these should be allies. They are both atheists. They both should not be, or they both should be very much in agreement. But Albert does not, does not like this in essence, says that he, he makes a lot of uh, pretty, pretty serious flaws. Um, one of them, uh, quote, where, for starters, are the laws of quantum mechanics themselves supposed to come from? Cross is more or less upfront, as it turns out, about not having a clue about that. He acknowledges, albeit in a parenthesis, in just a few pages from the end of the book, that everything he has been talking about simply takes the basic principles of quantum mechanics for granted. I have no idea if this notion, if this notion can be usefully dispensed with, he writes, or at least I don't know of any productive work in this regard. And what if he did know of some productive work in this regard? What if he were to were in a position to announce, for instance, that the truth of quantum mechanical laws can be traced back to the fact that the world has some other deeper property X, 
wouldn't we still be in a position to ask, to ask why X rather than Y? And is there at a last such question? Is there some point at which the possibility of asking any further such questions somehow definitively comes to an end? How would that work? What would that be like? In essence, Cross just kind of avoids this question entirely and spends the book both explaining the theory and also yelling at theologians for redefining, quote unquote, nothing to be the absence of these fields and whatnot, instead of the absence of of particle of elementary particles and whatnot, in, in which case Albert says, uh, well, but they're right, though. Um, kind of frustrate. You can see his frustration throughout this uh, this whole thing. Of he keeps wanting to say that they're wrong, but he has to keep agreeing with them. And the the, the main reason why I liked this article is mainly the, the kind of punchline at the end. Uh, so sorry, one last uh, long quote. And I guess it ought to be mentioned, quite apart from the question of whether anything Cross says turns out to be true or false, that the whole business of approaching the struggle with religion as if it were a card game or horse race or some kind of battle of wits just feels all wrong, or it does at any rate to me. When I was growing up, where I was growing up, there was a critique of religion according to which religion was cruel, and a lie, and a mechanism of enslavement, and something full of loathing and contempt for everything essentially human. Maybe that was true, and maybe it wasn't, but it had to do with important things. It had to do, that is, with history, and with suffering, and with hope of a better world. And it seems like a pity, and more than a pity, and worse than a pity, with all of that in the back of one's head, to think that all that gets offered to us now by guys like these and books like these is the pale, small, silly, nerdy accusation that religion is, I don't know, dumb. Which just, oh my goodness, what what a what a closer. Uh, so would highly recommend uh, reading uh, New York Times, On the Origin of Everything, A Universe from Nothing by Lawrence M. Cross, uh, the review by David Albert. Damn. Uh, hey, producers, uh, can we get a uh, KO sound effect in here? Awesome. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it in. Yeah. So, uh, I, I also read this article, uh, after being passed to it and I thought it was great, especially that ending paragraph. I'll admit my complete ignorance of quantum fields and elementary particles of various kinds, but I'll take it on faith that the reviewer knows what he's talking about. Uh, second, the article in this and this discussion that we're reinforces my conclusion that anyone trying to make a slam dunk on the topic of science and God, religion, materialism, blah, 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 uh, probably should do more reading because if you're confident enough to make a slam dunk, you probably haven't read everything that needs to be read. That is one thing that I, I found as I dived into philosophy more and more on kind of both sides. Every time I thought there was a silver bullet argument for or against uh, theism every single time. It's like, no, there are actually a handful of counter arguments that people have been employing for quite a long time. It also reminds me of a time I had a friend in a biology class and they were doing a panel and it's all, you know, it's, it's at a Christian school. So it's all these Christian school biology students in college. And there's a panel of bio profs and philosophy profs. And the philosophy profs are leaning really hard into the fact that some modern philosophy takes science very seriously and tries to delve into neuroscience and such to prove its theories about consciousness and truth and the possibility of a soul, etc. And, you know, making these desperate arguments to claim that, well, maybe perhaps in some world we could believe that there's some non-reductive materialism in the brain, but it's actually really reductive, but we have qualia or something and blah, blah, blah. And then the bioprofs were like, oh yeah, I'm a substance dualist and we have full souls. And the more I study biology, I'm convinced that science will never answer the question of consciousness and, and you know, God is real. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's surprising it, whenever whenever I, I encounter both scientists and philosophers that are kind of, kind of convinced that science has proven these things one way or another. It's just, it strikes me as kind of pushing it a little bit. No, yeah, I was talking to a, a psychologist at our school at a similar panel that um, I'd helped organize. And he was saying that, like, most sciences you can't prove or disprove the existence of a soul or prove or disprove you know the supernatural but a lot of the time in psychology we just have to assume that humans have some innate value and there might be something beyond the physical and that's just how it goes and it was just interesting to hear from a scientist that that's a baseline assumption while you have a lot of people in philosophy trying to disprove that um, the people actually looking at the body and looking at the brain and how humans interact are concluding that it doesn't really matter too much, I guess.
which I do respect that that kind of approach to it of if we are to make any sense of this field at all, we just kind of have to assume that humanity has some innate worth or some innate something. And we're going to kind of build from there because without this premise, we're just, it's just not going to work. Much like most science, we we have to assume that our observations are at least somewhat accurate. They are somewhat valid. Otherwise we just won't be able to move on from there. So I respect at least kind of acknowledging this is a base assumption. It's not going to work if we don't make this. So kind of let's let's move on from that. And this is kind of a tangent, but I think you can flip that around and apply it to religion as well. That if you try to go through and prove every different part of your religion and every different belief that you hold, you're not going to be able to do it. But you have to start with a few base assumptions about faith and about God and work from there. I think that's very Kierkegaardian, but I guess it goes both ways. Absolutely. I I used to be very much enthralled with the idea of apologetics and kind of proving out step by step every aspect of Christianity or, you know, whatever worldview you happen to ascribe to. I guess the the more I've kind of looked at it, the more the more I've realized that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there are no kind of silver bullet arguments or what have you. The more I kind of acknowledge that, yeah, you do have to just kind of accept a few things on on faith on their as your premises and just kind of move on from there and certainly that's not to say that you have to accept everything on blind faith or what have you but it is kind of important to at least acknowledge that you are doing that to an extent i don't know about you guys uh but i learned in awana that uh approved workmen are not ashamed um and that i need uh an answer for the hope that is within me so i'm going to quote bible verses at you until you change your mind dang it you beat me uh, but that is actually a pretty pretty nice transition to um, Sam's article with. I was, uh, was going to say America's Sam with the religion. transition. Sam with the transition, just wow, just taking over the podcast. Uh, <laughs> go that for was it. that was a subconscious transition there. So that was a smooth um, one, I liked it. It's a glitch in the matrix. <laughs> well, I guess that goes directly into the question of then what is religion, and particularly what is religion in America today, and Andrew Sullivan addresses this question in his article, America's New Religions, where he kind of looks at the political landscape of America and um, kind of looks at how it's beginning to replicate religion. He first starts out by just defining religion, and he basically says that religion is all practice. It's not the theory behind the religion, but we can define a religion based on how it's practiced. And the practice of religion, he says, is something that's, quote, a way of life that gives meaning. So, a religion outlines a way to live, um, how you're supposed to live in a meaningful way, and it gives you a way to interpret events in, and give them meaning. Uh, he goes on to say that all humans practice religion. So this is, you know, whether you're a Christian um, who goes to church at, um, on Sundays or whether you're an atheist, you're still practicing religion because you have some framework and a way that you go through life that gives it meaning, or at least you try to. And so then he goes into looking at where we are today. And he basically says that right now we believe in progress. Our main religion in America is progress. And that's kind of replaced Christianity. It's a materialistic and capitalist system where we try to find meaning through the satisfaction of our wants and needs. And so we work hard, we earn money, and we spend it on mostly materialistic goods. And that's our modern religion. Um, But he then goes into the point that we can't find meaning from that. He quotes John Stuart Mill and Bertrand Russell, both who talked about how when they, they, they both reached a point in their careers where they realized that just trying to improve the world was not at all enough. And you had to find joy and happiness somewhere else. Uh, Russell even went to, to the length of saying that the human, the human, Loneliness is so um, unendurable that it has to be penetrated by the highest intensity of love, just like all the religious teachers talked about. And so those are kind of a couple thinkers who realize this materialist system is not enough. And Sullivan goes into talking about how the modern world intentionally protects us from those moments. We have so many distractions, um, whether it's media or sex or, you know, any any kind of good to just distract us from those moments and oh, the way uh, that like yeah uh, uh, podcasts podcasts exactly listening to podcasts to feel more educated um, and distract yourself I mean I, I'm guilty of this I I 
rarely drive anywhere anymore without throwing on a podcast because I don't want to sit and just listen to my own thoughts and look at the brake lights in front of me. So that's just that's where our modern world's at. A good quotation from him is he says that quote, but the but the but the banality of the god of progress, the idea that the best life is writing explainers for Vox in order to make the world a better place, never quite slacks the thirst for something deeper. He then talks a little bit about liberalism and kind of American liberalism. He says that that should solve this issue, kind of taking a Tocquevillian route, where he says that we, if we separate God and Caesar, as Jesus was instructing, then we can find all of our meaning in religion, and then we don't need to put our trust in that secular leader. Which I, I think so, there is... Oh, sorry. Oh, no. So that's kind of where he then pivots and he says, okay, so if we have liberal, if, if liberalism can prevent the issue of, it can allow us to find meaning and have a productive government, then what happens when you remove religion as we've done today? And he says that when you remove the religion, you get a collection of new and crude cults. And he explores two of these cults, the cult of Trump and the cult of social justice. The cult of Trump is basically as he defines nominally Christian, but with very little demonstration and of that Christianity and are basically coasting along in our economy. There's not really a God to turn to. And he also did a, a big uh, piece on the opioid crisis, um, I think about a year ago. And it talked about how like a lot of these people are literally numbing themselves to death, which is a pretty graphic image. But what happens when there's no religion or no meaning there. Talks about how Christianity has become a political and social identity. Um, the whole idea that America is God's chosen country, the huge focus on how we have Christian foundations and we are founded by Christians and we're a Christian nation. Just trying to find that social um, identity there. And then that this cult has chosen a rallying figure around Trump and how he can do no wrong. And he's somebody that they can focus on and just follow. And that fits all those needs for meaning that he defined um, in religion. The second cult is the cult of social justice. Basically, this cult you it explains and gives meaning to, to a fallen world. Uh, it looks at the world that we see, the simple world, and it basically concludes that power structures are the entire problem. And that can give you a huge amount of security and a huge amount of comfort in that there's something that you can explain all these problems with. Um, it has Puritan-like tendencies, like policing language, um, policing action. It has lots of similarities to actually evangelicalism or early like Great Awakening. Uh, the admission of, of sin is the same as the admission of white privilege. Being born again is getting woke. And so what he says to conclude this is, and so the young adherents of the Great Awakening exhibit the zeal of the Great Awakening. Basically, people are trying to fill the void of religion, but without the restraint that Christianity offers. And so what, he, what this demonstrates is how necessary uh, tolerant Christianity really is for a functioning democracy. And he concludes with going back to Tocqueville. So always, that's my always article. Go back to Tocqueville. But Tocqueville is great. And maybe just a catch-all for um, social issues. I don't know. But he does a very nice job addressing these issues. Yeah, so like like when you're a young aspiring author and you're like, how am I going to write an article about insert any social issue here? Uh, and I write for a bi-monthly magazine of some kind. The first thing you should always do is go to Tocqueville and do a control F search through a PDF of it and find whatever he said about it. <laughs> and there's half your article just written just pre-written for you right there. <laughs> um, but Sam, on on your article, I actually pulled out that same quote because it's his best line. Uh, but the banality of the gut of progress, the idea that the best life is writing explainers for Vox in order to make the world a better place never quite slikes the thirst for something deeper is a fantastic... <laughs> 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 that was... The, yeah, uh, that was easily my my favorite line. Um, but I, I wasn't quite That sure. line and the Great Awakening. I yeah. start using that regularly. The Great Awakening. It's like, have you participated in the Great Awakening, brother? Are you woke, brother? Oh, wait, no, but you can't say Never mind. You know what? We're just going to leave this behind. This is too political. Okay, so I actually had a question. So he, he, made, he said that religion as practice instead of theory. So now he's changing or he's making religion not the affirmation of 
premises like God exists, for example. In, in, instead, it's it's a way of life. But the thing that sort of confused me is that, in my mind at least, I don't know if you could properly call something a, a religion unless it's publicly practiced, that there's a public aspect to it, or you know, would be in an ideal situation. What do you mean by practiced? So he's saying that for so for example, just to, to draw out the terms, in my understanding, liberalism, which is our government, is not religion. It doesn't attempt to meaning make. It doesn't try and make meaning out of things. It it it's a procedure. Absolutely um, not. Yeah. And and th- and the reason that this is okay and that it works is because people do religion on the side and that and draw their meaning from there and then go to liberalism in the public sphere and hypothetically don't worry about doing any meaning making there because they got it all on the side. Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate point to what Sullivan's saying. I think that he would more say instead of like on the side that they're done in tandem, that a person's life is finding meaning from the religion and then, fi- and then creating public order through the democratic liberalism. Mm-hmm. But part of, at least arguably, part of religion is practice in community and practice in public. You don't, if you're practicing a religion and it doesn't enter the public sphere or let's even say the political sphere, I, I don't know. It just seems weird how he sort of segments off religion from being in public where the dominant thing seems to be liberalism, or maybe I'm not being charitable. I'm not sure. Well, so it it seems that he is trying to distinguish between a set of procedures for governing a social order and a set of procedures for governing your personal life. Whereas it seems that the, the former would be more governmental. This is how we're going to run a society. And there's no real, like, of course there's philosophy, there's social order. There's, there's a lot of that in, but there's no distinct. We are, we are setting these laws because we think that there's a distinct higher power or ultimate reality meaning like capital M meaning behind these laws. It's more, we're all entering kind of a a more cold social contract in order to just be able to have a society that can function together. Whereas I will go through my own personal set of real religion, be that Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, or even according to uh, Sullivan, even like atheism as a form of religion in that, I will go through my own procedures, my own set of meaning making, um, because that gives my life personal meaning. So it, it, it seems that there are kind of two ways that he's approaching a, a set of procedures or, or what have you. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think part of it is just me not liking his definition of religion, which is my problem and not the articles. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I definitely think that you could take, I definitely think that you could take religion further than that. Um, I mean, I think as Christians, you're definitely called to. You're called to take that into the public sphere. But I think that for the purposes of his article, looking at it kind of stepping back and looking at what we have acting in America, the only way that you can tell that is through practice. You can only identify what a religion is through how its people are acting. Does that make sense? So uh, in this sense... He argues everyone practices a religion. Religions are not. Oh, so maybe this actually dovetails with with what I wanted to see out of the article. Religion is practiced by everyone. It's it's the way that you make meaning. Not all religions are are made alike. Some will not give you enough uh, meaning making to satisfy you and not make you you know and tamp down your violence or despair or ex, you know existential dread or desire to play Cthulhu themed board games, etc. And the breakdown of religions of that sort that were strong in that they were communal and people could be together and practice together and instead have become individualized and siloed, and they don't have a strong religion, as it were, to stave off their, you know, worst instincts. And, you know, now they're playing D&D and they're in one of the uh, they're in one of the cults. Is that maybe a fair estimation? I think that's fair is that basically what he's saying is that humans naturally try to find meaning. They're just, they're going to impulsively search for it. And at some point in that article, he says, he talks about that. Um, and he's saying because religion in America is declining and because people aren't able to find that meaning 
from religion. It's not as strong as it used to be. Now they're going into the public sphere and into the cults to find that meaning. So basically, they're going to find it somewhere. If religion doesn't give it, they're going to try to find it in the public sphere. That's bad. See Tocqueville. Which, I mean, it would hardly be a, the problem with reading a podcast without me bringing up my main man, David Foster Wallace, um, in that during his, uh, his speech, um, you know, the, uh, This is Water, he was very quick to emphasize one of the kind of the great truths of your existence is that you are always worshiping something. You, you can't get out of worshiping some, uh, something. So you need to be very, very careful what to worship. If you're worshiping something that is you centered, um, he said something to effect a far more lovely quote than I'll probably be able to represent, but you will, you will die a thousand deaths before they finally mourn you. And I, I, I like the idea because most in, and uh, it seems that Solomon kind of touches on this in that a lot of the, the things that are kind of designed to anesthetize us. Uh, you kind of gave a, a list of that earlier. Um, the things that are kind of designed to anesthetize us, it is kind of causing people to die a thousand deaths and they are waking up into it. But the problem is, it seems that there's there's still not enough care being put into what narrative you choose to become a, a worshiper of. Um, and it seems that these relatively young, quote unquote, cults of either Trumpism or social justice or what have you. I mean, yeah, the, the, the meaning making is of a cheap kind and a very uh, kind of almost a I hesitate to say dangerous kind, but it, it's one where zeal becomes uh, quickly uh, overriding of our um, more practical, reasonable, older religions that are able to kind of rein that in, hopefully. So speaking of uh, narratives, good and bad, I think that is a lovely transition to my own uh, article. But Stephen, before I start, I just want to let you know that uh, David Foster Wallace will be mentioned uh, in my summary of my article. So just try not to have a heart attack. He's still my beating heart. <laughs> All right. So the article that I am approaching this week is called uh, Dear Humanities Profs, We Are the Problem by Eric Bennett. And it's in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is, you know, fairly entertaining to read. It's just, you know, written by profs for profs. And it is my eternal goal in life to uh, never graduate from college. Um, in my mind, because um, I'm less than a year out and I already hate normal life. All right. So this article is talking about humanities profs and wondering at the situation we find ourselves in with the Trump presidency and the state of media and politics and lack of truthiness in the public sphere. And this prof argues that literature had what it took to combat demagoguery but that it voluntarily gave that up. Um, and I have way too many quotes in my summary, but I'll try and keep it short. The thesis is more or less that, quote, three generations ago, literature professors exchanged a rigorously defined sphere of expertise to which they could speak with authority for a much wider field to which they could speak with virtually no power at all. No longer refusing to allow politics to corrupt a human activity that transcends it, they reduced the literary to the political. And he argues that English departments contributed to that state of affairs, uh, recent increase in the amount of literature, the democratization of the canon, in which more and more things are available to read, are justifiable to read. He, he gives the example of Victorian professors making extensive studies of uh, Victorian Twitter uh, pages and just fake. Victorian quotes, and they're like, wow, this is more Victorian than the Victorians. And he's like, what? How has it come to this? Why are we doing this? And he argues pretty interestingly from history that English departments were founded, especially the ones, you know, sort of 1930s to 1960s, to be a specific counter to demagogues, and that it was funded and justified on the presumption of its value as a bulwark against propaganda and political charisma. What we've done, what has happened recently, is that the canon has been somewhat abandoned, and it. But, but his argument is that quote, democratizing the canon did not mean abdicating authority over it, but this was how it played out. And so he argues that English departments built up expertise, especially with modern with modernist literature that had a lot of aesthetic hierarchy. It was serious. It was difficult. It was complex. It, it was ambiguous, and that these things were sort of meant to connect us. 
to big ideas and that things like the GI Bill, uh, when all the soldiers came home from war, that sent a generation of people off to university, was that that was a political insulation to send people to learn so that they to learn literature, to gain nuanced opinions and ability to analyze things so, so that they could avoid the fascistic or communistic, radical, reactionary politics of Europe, specifically by engaging in this very uh, complex literature and to build up expertise. But then later on, as information became more available, the internet being the classic thing, they, there was no more hierarchy. There was no more canon anymore. And so now humanities has to function on this incorrect idea that, or quote, the propagandistic nightmare of 1939 was metastatic unity, but the propagandistic specter today, just as grave, is the, is the arrogant and ubiquitous hunch that an individual mind can overthrow the collective lie. The humanities were once upon a time a laboratory for experiments in shared interpretation. They have become like politics, and in fact, as politics, aggressively individualistic and resolutely anti-historical. And he gives some examples of this, of people doing strategic literature, which is code for ignore all history that contradicts the narrative that you're making with literature. And a lot of this grows out of, and this is my final thing that I will say, uh, pathology in our culture and in the humanities studies. And uh, to quote once again, quote, David Foster Wallace's greatest gift to American readers might have been his warning that cynicism posed a larger threat than the naivete it was de- that it delivered us from, uh, end quote. So, yeah, that was the article. It was it was great. Did I, did either of you guys get a chance to glance at it? I did yeah. I I was very impressed. Not only because uh, they quoted David Foster Wallace, but in in general, there was there there does seem to be an issue. I mean, it's almost getting back to Plato and his in his critique of democracy in that when you give it to everyone, kind of ideally everyone will be able to contribute, but sometimes it can get pirated. Um, and the idea of literature and just the liberal arts in general is kind of checks against demagogy, however, however, however you pronounce, uh, pronounce uh, the... Uh, demagoguery. Yes, demagoguery. Thank you. Um, if, if you aren't careful in your democratization, you will give yourself over to that. And... It, it, it does seem that that is where the liberal arts has kind of found itself. And I, I do very much appreciate somebody kind of coming out and acknowledging this was the logical conclusion of our attempt to radically democratize uh, the liberal arts. It, it's almost that you could say that there is a problem with reading or something. Damn, ain't that the truth? And also the part that I thought was maybe the best point was his argument that the humanities and English in particular, since that's what he's writing from and to, has a very specific advantage in their uh, in their expertise and identifying of big themes and ideas and great texts. And he argues maybe somewhat naively that, you know, dead white male content of the traditional canon is a bug, not a feature, and that it could have been possible to do a better one. And that when we've moved away from that because of the bug, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. And there's no better champions for the canon than I can think of people who manage to add to the canon and make the canon better, but without throwing out the expertise and the importance of having shared interpretation and shared texts. And that is uh, Robert George and Cornell West. They have a fantastic lecture. They used to teach together at Princeton, one being you know, a relatively conservative Catholic philosopher, the other an African-American philosopher, political activist, etc. But what unites them is their shared love of the canon and the importance of it and the widening of it, uh, obviously, but just how important that is to civilization and to, you know, being better people. I, I'm curious, have, have either of you read um, Amusing Ourselves to Death? I have not. Nor have I. Uh, it, it's well worth it. If you ever get the, uh, get the chance, it's, um, it, it, it is very well done. And it kind of goes, I, I, I do wonder if, um, uh, sorry, who is, who is the author of this again? Eric Bennett, I think. I, I do wonder if Bennett was somewhat playing with this idea. I, I remember several times him kind of discussing uh, if you if you took a, a newspaper article, for example, and sent it back to the 16th century, how people would read it over several days and they'd really wrestle with a lot of these issues. Whereas that's not what the newspaper article is really intended to. It's more intended to give us like a quick 
you know, fast bit of a summary that we can immediately form an opinion on. And he, he also kind of digressed into short rants on the idea that, you know, Hollywood do, would do the same thing and that it kind of accidentally in, in an attempt to kind of, even though it would like uh, preach against totalitarianism and whatnot and, and propaganda, it did a sin that was almost as bad in that, well, uh, in, in that kind of appealing to the wishes uh, for us or the, the wishes of humanity to have something very easy to access and very simple, straightforward messages that are easy to consume. And, and he praised literature that made us wrestle with big ideas that did not get easy answers that, that made us kind of understand that, that life is a lot more complicated and difficult than that. Than that. And I, I very much appreciated the idea that the antidote for propaganda isn't necessarily mass democracy where you give everyone, um, you know, access to these messages, but rather that you make the messages realistic in that they are difficult. They, they take work, they take effort. Um, and that's something that the liberal arts can be, which I, I very much appreciated that idea. Yeah. Well, when I was, um, I was, I only had a chance to skim this article, but what I thought back to was, um, about a year ago when I took a class um, on modernity uh, taught by an English professor and the class was basically the goal of the class was to walk through like the modern canon of philosophy. So we were supposed to read Descartes and Locke and then into a little bit of Kant all the way up to basically the forties and post-modernity. And I was very excited for the class, but when we got into it, it turned out that the entire structure of the class was we read a textbook basically about postmodernity and critiquing modernity and then read only specific parts of Kant and specific parts of Locke that were problematic and then critiqued them. And what that did, I mean, it did a lot of really harmful things. The first thing was it kind of set up the um, a false dichotomy between the options of modernity and postmodernity and me being the, um, the contrarian person that I am decided, well, of course, if I don't like postmodernity, I'm I'm not a, a Marxist. So naturally, I have to defend everything about modernity, which turned out to be not a good choice. And so uh, I guess one of the issues that we're seeing from this on the ground at the university is trying to define the canon and define exactly how we should feel about the past and not actually allowing for people to to experience the breadth that literature can bring like look look at um you know pre-modernity look at some more classical um interpretations and really dive into the liberal arts on a holistic scale that that's one harm that i'm seeing from this sort of definition of the canon so so sam i i noticed that uh, you mentioned that you didn't want to defend all of modernity, um, but I, I, I do have a question. Uh, do you use a cell phone? I do use a cell phone. Well, did you know that without modernity, you wouldn't have a cell phone? So checkmate, you traditional squirrel. So moving on to our next section, uh, we are now going to talk about our rants for this week, things that we uh, loved or hated, if we so desire. Uh, Steven. Do you have a rant for us? Yes, that modernity gives me my uh, my current employment, so so stuff it. Um, but uh, I, I suppose uh, a rant that I could uh, go on for quite some time, and I have in fact gone on for for quite some time in the past. The the current idea, and this is somewhat tied into the American idea of individualism, which we've we've kind of briefly touched on. But uh, kind of the the, the premise of kind of adult life, especially once you leave college and college is kind of, I guess, our society's coming of age. So once you come of age, at, at, at most you're kind of expected you you get a wife and two and a half kids or or for, for us, or you, get a, you get a wife or you get a husband or you get a you get a spouse, two and a half kids. And that's kind of your your nuclear family becomes your community and that's it. Or you go out to the big city and you kind of make it on your own. And it's the kind of the rugged individualism that is expected. And those are really kind of your two options. And I, I suppose one thing that irritates me is that so often people's yearning for a deeper community than that, than uh, for perhaps either uh, a, a deep community of friends to integrate themselves with, either in addition to a spouse and family, or even to even with the exclusion of a spouse and family, that that is often viewed as uh, rav- relatively naive or adolescent. I, I, I think it's it it's somewhat of a sad thing that. 
I mean, our, our, we've read the statistics. Our, our generation is considered one of the most, one of the, if not the most lonely generation to have ever been recorded. And part of me kind of ponders and wonders if this is part of it uh, in that community is viewed as adolescent uh, at best. Um, and that when we, when we leave college, when we leave, for the most part, a college like is where we make a lot of our friends. We're kind of expected to, to put them aside and then go on and go about our serious work. And so it, it kind of saddens me that that, it, that community is viewed as relatively naive. Yeah, that actually makes me think of um, the article that was my second choice for the article today, um, the Arthur Brooks op-ed in the New York Times that he published a couple months ago about American loneliness, uh, titled How Loneliness, How Loneliness is Tearing America Apart. And I think that's an extremely relevant issue. Like Brevin and I talked about this a few weeks ago how we found such a great community in undergrad. And then he graduated and re- is now realizing what a rare opportunity that was and how unrealistic it is in the world. Yeah, it's, it's a growing issue. A growing issue. I've seen, I've seen a, like one or two articles. I haven't seen that one though. So if you want to give that to me offline, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind taking a look at that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that seems to be on the, the rise, which I guess awareness of it is certainly a good thing. Well, you know what else you can be aware of it's the project of the novels that you're reading uh so my rant is i just finished a novel by Catherine valente uh called habitation of the blessed subtitle is uh, a dirge for prester john it's a trilogy there are only two books out so far it has a really interesting premise it's about prester john who was a legendary christian patriarch and king who was you know thought to have a magical land that he ruled of or that he ruled during the dark ages or so and you know there were people who went off in search of trying to find him and like you know this magical a Christian kingdom in the middle of, you know, the unknown dark lands beyond Christendom. Um, and what Valente's done with it is really interesting. It's a very rich world. It has tons of info and name dropping. So that I thought basically either this is incredible world building or the book is trying to confuse me so that it can slip some sort of sloppiness by me. Um, and turns out it's both true. She does very good world building and the story is mostly an adventure, but towards the end, it turns pedantic with the plot being there's this self-righteous priest who finds this magical land And he just very explicitly goes around imposing his Christian views on a world of kind, gentle, Eden-esque beings that just don't fit his uncomplicated Christian story. And the text riffs on that like five times. And it's always alluding to this thing that John's imposition of Christian philosophy on these you know, otherwise immortal and tolerant people just ruins everything. And all that said, it's a really fascinating book. And checking the context and the background between the story she tells, which is really fascinating, it led down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. But when it really counts, this book is the opposite of subtle, and it's hostile at worst. So, yeah. Uh, Sam, anything got your goat this week? Um, Not really this week, but over the last month or so. I'm not sure if this is your first episode since Christmas or not. Um, But this rant was inspired by your rant um, last episode, where you talked about the... um, the Disney acapella performance. And my question is, what did America do to Christmas? In the past, I've I've really, for the past several years, I've really disliked the holiday season. And in part, I've just said it's consumerism and I don't like the consumerism of it. And it's just another example of Americans trying to find meaning through material wealth. Um, see the soul of an article from earlier. But it seemed to be something more intricate and even, I guess, more of an issue when I was um, actually spending a part of my Christmas break at Disney World with my family. Um, and we went to this Christmas performance that my mom wanted to see. And it was basically, they had a full choir and a full orchestra playing very, very wonderful music, uh, great rend- renditions of traditional Christmas songs, um, reading scripture along with it. So reading the Christmas story with it. It was a beautiful setting on a lake. And it had absolutely zero meaning. That the whole point of this, the Christmas story was finding the Christmas spirit inside you. And well, the conclusion I'm working on is that this Christmas spirit may be an effort to cling to some significance without actually having to commit to the full narrative of, Christian, of Christmas in the grand scheme of Christianity. So that's my rant, is maybe the appropriation of Christmas in American society. But overall, I'm, I'm pretty happy to be through the holiday season. No, uh, Stephen, no joke. He, I guess I called him, but I was talking to him and he was in <laughs> Disneyland. And, and, oh, and no. he was just like, yeah, Brevin, I'm just, I'm going around and I just finished, and I just read Walker Percy and I just, man, nothing has meaning. Just everything's been emptied <laughs> of meaning. It's just all so meaningless. 
And then my, and, and then this is still Sam talking. And then my dad was like, Sam, you can't just say that everything has been emptied of meaning. You have to have a different thing to say about things. <laughs> and I realized I was using, I was applying that to everything. <laughs> what? What person it it. traumatizes you? <laughs> It's traumatizing my family. They're like, just let's enjoy the vacation. Not everything has to have meaning. Um, but that definitely did not. It, 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 there is something, there is something kind of sad watching what, what's happened to Christmas and not, not kind of the, the old tired cliche, keep Christ in Christmas or, or, or whatever. I mean, it, it is genuine, genuinely sad. The fact that Christmas is now in large part, just kind of this tacky, overdone overly sentimental to the point of it being sickly sweet just over overdone holiday that it, it on one hand has such nuggets of absolute beauty in it mm-hmm. but it's just all encapsulated by yes a lot of consumerism but a lot of really shallow uh, kind of asinine spirituality and philosophy and attempts at feel good quasi religion and whatnot that it, it, it just makes it more sad than anything. Yeah. And that's part of it is like, I can wrestle, I can, I can understand the consumerism. I can understand, you know, especially in a, you know, the, the free market uh, capitalist side of me can definitely understand wanting to make a companies wanting to make a buck off of the celebration. That's all fine. But what was more disturbing is taking like sacred meaning, the sacred meaning behind it and the significance of that. And then, stripping it of that until you have a cliche um, remark about Christmas spirit and peace, whatever that means. Absolutely. It's getting to the point where I kind of, I I think I actually, uh, one of my, one of my atheist um, friends was, was commenting on how, you know, Christmas wasn't originally a a Christian holiday or whatever, and going back to like Roman times or whatever. And I mean, to which I, I don't know enough about history to confirm or deny, but I do know that they are at least somewhat related. So I shrug and I'm, but I chose a different response instead said something to the effect of, well, the Christmas we now know is, is so fundamentally different than the Christians in the middle ages would have known that they are for all intents and purposes, two completely separate holidays. And I kind of wish that we, we as Christians would just embrace that and say, yeah, like uh, you guys, you have your secular Christmas. If, if actually you would take the Christ out of Christmas and quit pretending that he's in that Christmas, maybe even call it something else. Like, please uh, enough of this. And like, kind of give us our religious sacred holiday back, and keep your your flimsy spirituality to yourselves. So I I actually am going to take. So that was all very very depressing. Thank you. Um, but I I I'm going to take a slightly different tack on this, which I feel somewhat obligated to because this was this the the homily at the midnight Christmas Eve service that I went to. Oh wait, no, Sam, you were which there. Was lo- I was there, and it was lovely. Okay, no. Uh, might be confusing this with another one, but I believe the priest's argument, the father's argument, was that we should appreciate the fact that people recognize a little bit of the spark of importance and meaning that people are always trying to grasp onto at Christmas, despite the fact that you know they've corrupted it and 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 filtered it and diluted it, etc. You know that's that's an avenue into an otherwise dark, brutalist architecture, concrete structure of a society right um so that's that's the counter argument uh y'all are y'all are the benedict option over here you're not wrong that's that's funny that you're saying that the the two protestants here are the benedict option and you're the one who's trying to evangelize the society steven are you protestant do you count yourself as protestant yeah i'm still protestant i mean i'm not catholic or orthodox so i that's that's kind of the default option i fall into confused is i think the the best term for it well, okay, but are you, you know what? Let's just end it here. Um, <laughs> I was going to say there's a fourth option and it's heretic, but. Uh, so, <laughs> all right. Heterodox. Heterodox. Yes. That's the cop out. Pluralism. Yeah. Let's just call it pluralism. Ooh, not oh, talking. no, that, that's, that's even worse. Dang. All right. So uh, for the problem with reading special episode, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we will see you next time. Adios.
Oh, you know, I, I do wish, uh, I, I wonder if you could actually have linked the opioid crisis with kind of the, the modern celebration of pot being legalized. Not, I don't have a huge problem with pot being legalized. I don't, I don't see Washington mm-hmm. going down the drain any more than already uh... was or whatever. But like, I do wonder if you could have actually linked that in with um, uh, Sullivan's comments on the op- opioid ec- epidemic and kind of the, the desire for people to be able to numb themselves and whatnot. I, I kind of that's, well, that's a good line, I think. Yeah, I could. The issue being that most of the, I mean, from Are a your libertarian senses firing. No, no, because um, I mean, maybe a little bit. Now that you say that. <laughs> 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 no, um, no. I guess like I, the reason I didn't think of that was because it didn't really fit on that side of the spectrum because the opi- the, the opioid crisis, or at least as Sullivan is discussing it, is on the political right, and the legalization of marijuana is mainly being driven by the political left or the left libertarians. True, and but so, it, like, could, it could be that kind of both, like politics aside, both issues are kind of pointing to this idea of people attempting to numb themselves. And I mean, you could just say that both cults are picking their respective drug of choice. Ooh, I like uh, I like that. Leftists, you guys think you're so cool. You do your your weed, but we people on the right, we actually like drugs. We do opioids. <laughs> Checkmate, <laughs> <the> girls. <laughs> <laughs> 